Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of PhD students studying computational neuroscience. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. And I'm Connor. And the topic for this episode is the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. Uh, so we got this topic from two essays. One is called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences by Eugene Wigner. That was published in 1960. And then in 1980, R.W. Hamming had kind of a response to uh, Wigner's essay, which was just called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. I should also mention that there are other kind of uh, essays with the same structure that have been kind of spun off of this one, such as The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Data, which was uh, among the authors was Peter Norvig, who's a researcher at Google on AI. And so the basic concept behind these essays is something along the lines of math is good at explaining things in the world, and why is that, uh, to put it very simply. So Wigner's essay, he focuses on two points, basically. Uh, one, that different mathematical concepts can show up in many different places and explain broadly different things. And also, uh, he talks about the question of whether our mathematical models of systems are unique for those systems. Um, and then he kind of starts it off by defining mathematics in his terms and defining what the physical sciences are, and then goes into the role of math in the physical sciences and explores whether we should find it surprising that um, math can do everything that it does in the physical sciences. And then in Hamming's essay, he kind of recaps what Wigner said and then gives four possible explanations for why math is or appears to be uh, very good at explaining the world. So I guess we should start maybe with his definition of mathematics just to like lay the groundwork for the conversation. I don't know if he gave a very clear definition of mathematics. Maybe we should quote the first two lines. Sure, go ahead. So he has a section which is called, What is Mathematics? And he says, Somebody once said that philosophy is the misuse of a terminology which was invented just for this purpose. In the same vein, I would say that mathematics is the science of skillful operations with concepts and rules invented just for this purpose. And yeah, he focuses, in the next sentence, the principal emphasis is on the invention of concepts. So in his mind, mathematics is, or the, the doing of mathematics is inventing concepts, I suppose. Yeah, and this kind of gets at a philosophical distinction that some people bring up as to whether mathematicians are inventing or discovering what it is they study. Um, and so that, that's kind of a popular topic, um, and, and this guy falls pretty cleanly on the side of mathematics are kind of inventing things. At the same time, he kind of makes it seem like it's miraculous that mathematics works out so nicely, um, which to me, I don't know, kind of hints at like a, an almost sympathy for there being an underlying structure that you're discovering rather than just kind of inventing things, and it always coincidentally works out very nicely. Yeah. Well, at the same time, though, also, even if it were an invented system, I mean, then that should work out nicely because you're designing it. Sure, so, yeah. so like engineers build things that work reasonably well all the time, so it's unsurprising that human-made things that are made to be self-consistent are self-consistent. Yeah. And then this relates to one of Hamming's proposed explanations, right? Which yeah. is that... Um, we select the kind of mathematics to use? I sure, guess. yeah. So this was in his four points, which I guess we'll kind of enumerate explicitly later. Yeah, his, uh, what is it? It's I mean, he his says, second point is yes, that we select uh, the math that's appropriate for the problems that we're applying them to, essentially. And we also can develop new things as we need it. As, so. Yeah, so I think, uh, I guess we want to pinpoint exactly what is supposed to be the surprising point. Because yeah. in both of these essays... I don't feel like they say it so explicitly, yeah. um, but it's just assumed that, well, aren't we all awed when we do math and it works? It's kind of like, well, let's, why are we all awed by that? Um, and I just, it's not really obvious that everyone is awed by that or that everyone should be awed by that because partly we don't have any baseline comparison, like, oh, math is really good at explaining the world compared to what? Yeah, so this kind of this kind of gets at sort of my view on it, which, I mean, I think is not exactly sympathetic to the way that they present things, although it's more sympathetic with Hamming's, which is, 
you know, if math is, or if, if there are concepts that exist that we're interested in talking about, or, I mean, even, I mean, we don't have to get into the, the, the very deep parts of this, but if, if there exists something in the world that we want to talk about or, or characterize, math is simply the language that we use to describe those things. It, it isn't clear that math it needs to be something which is totally abstracted from any entities, though it's abstract in the sense that it can apply to multiple things generally. I mean, and Hamming does talk about this a bit. I mean, he talks about kind of his theories as to the origins of mathematics. He's, you know, he describes them as coming from coming from notions of, of shapes that you would see, or, or you know, when he talks about numbers as the sort of generalization of counting. And, and these things kind of make sense and are relatively standard. But it, it seems like it's it's not that hard to to jump from these notions and... Well, there's a sense in which, you know, we we started using math to help organize and understand the world. So why should we be surprised that it continues to do that, you know, sometimes uh, beyond what we expected? You know, there's, uh, I think it's in Figner's essay, he talks about, or maybe it was Hamming, but th- there's a idea of getting more out of the mathematical model than you put into it. Yeah, Figner talks about Yeah, but uh, so... Uh, in some sense, you could say that that's a surprise. You know, you didn't design that mathematical model to do that exact thing. You designed it to explain some other part of a complex system, and it happens to explain this new part of it as well. But if it's actually a proper model of that complex system, then why should it not have the other thing as well? If it's kind of supposed to be a model of something, then it should have multiple components uh, in line with the real world. Yeah, so if, I mean, if, if the real world's consistent in a certain sense, yeah. then the model that you have of it should be consistent and will predict things that go beyond what. So Wigner does kind of get at that. He also doesn't. He kind of talks about the fact that he he sort of at times sounds like he's saying we can use mathematics to describe the the real world, and that depends on or is the same as the fact that the real world has a certain consistency. And he says that that should be actually surprising as well. Yeah, kind of he, well, he, are you talking about the part where he talks about um, invariances and the fact that you need to have invariances to be able to, yeah. to understand? I mean, that's not even just about math applying to the world, that's just about being able to do science. You have to assume yeah. that you know your experiment is going to be more or less the same, even if you do it over several days or something like that. So, I mean, yeah, that's obviously true, but yeah, I think this goes to the point of you know, are people here being surprised that math can explain the world, or are they just being surprised that the world is at all consistent and regular and has laws to begin with? Because if the world has laws and there are relationships among things, then we shouldn't be surprised that we can kind of use write a language. Down, yeah, yeah, basically use, use a language that can describe them. Yeah, to write down the relationships and then kind of see how they work in symbols, and it should apply to the real relationships because there are symbols relationships are kind of yeah. So this kind of gets back to what I was trying to communicate. Uh, the symbols, to me, the math, is is a formal language that, that people have developed to communicate or describe uh, things that they see out in the world. There's a, there's something that, they, that both of them kind of talk about in some form or another, which is like nature use, writes in, in mathematical language or something like this. I, I think that's kind of confused. I don't think that nature is writing in math or, or has, has laws that are, are written in math. It's that humans look and see some structure and... Humans have capabilities to permit us to communicate linguistically, and so we've developed language that can describe quantities or, or processes that involve quantity, quantities, and so we can make very precise statements about quantities related to systems in the world. And, and, you know, that's just kind of something that humans do, I think. Sure. We, I think they both allude to this a little bit, but... There is. We also don't have any, like you said at the beginning, benchmarks. So, like, we don't know how much we could, or like, say, any species could understand the world. I find that a kind of compelling way of thinking about it as well. Like, Hamming kind of dismisses all of these, these four things that we'll probably get to in detail later. Well, we just enumerate those. Yeah. Okay. So, the kind of first point, put very briefly, is that we see what we look for when we look at nature. So, if we're looking for something in nature some specific simple system or something like this, we might see that. The second point is that when trying to, you know, describe something with math, we select the appropriate math. It's not the case that any math will apply anywhere in nature in terms of descriptions. 
uh, and sometimes we have to develop new things as we need. The third point uh, was that the science for which math is useful tends to be simple, basically. Or, it, and I would kind of append to that, that it at least begins simple. So there are complicated things that people have uh, have, have dealt with in, in math or applied math fields or engineering or science, but they kind of start with, with simple. And uh, so the math has only explained simple things. It yeah. hasn't actually explained all that much. The way he states it is, science, in fact, answers comparatively few problems. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, so that kind of science clearly, you know, has has some scope to it, which, you know, by some measures might be limited. But certainly quantitative sciences are even more limited. So, like, social sciences, I think, have a lot more trouble becoming quantitative because the ability to describe things very precisely, formally, with math yeah. is harder. So, like, physicists do it well, but they do it for single particles. There's clearly, I always feel really sympathetic to that view. Again, it's interesting to me that in his conclusion, he's going to end up kind of dismissing all of these as really explaining the full thing. Mm -hmm. That's another one that I find very convincing in some way. I don't know, maybe I'm being naive, but like, it's obviously the case that physics, even with, if you look within science, you look at physics compared to biology, compared to social science, and then even look within physics, you know, compare the physics of like fundamental physics of, of particles Compare that with, um, you know, the physics of more, say, complicated materials that are made up of lots of different particles and so on. Those parts of science that are most mathematical and most precise kind of deal with proportionally the simplest parts yeah. of And so, I mean, historically, you know, you might have some sort of naive expectation. Oh, physicists are just the smartest human beings. Biologists are less intelligent or something like this. But now there's, you know, as many physicists as, as have ever studied problems in the past are studying biological phenomena, and they find it difficult too, right? They, they try to bring a sort of quantitative take to biological problems, but the biological problems are just hard to describe with simple sets of equations that you can manipulate easily. And often it ends up being kind of dissatisfying when you have these physicists, you know, who moved into biology because they were like, oh, biology is so exciting, and physics is getting a little boring, and, and then they kind of like, yeah, we're going to be quantitative, we're going to like revolutionize things, and, you know, obviously we all find that appealing because we're all agreed that it should be rigorous and quantitative, but there are often these kind of dissatisfying models that are simple, very simplified, but are clearly wrong. And like, yeah, yeah. Essentially, we apply diffusion equations to Everything. most phenomena. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so but Hamming's fourth point, just before we, before we leave that directly, was uh, kind of along the lines of evolution has shaped our ability to pose and evaluate models of the world, and also our sensory apparatuses. I would say the first three, I kind of, in some form, was thinking when I was reading Bigner's piece, because um, related to the notion that science hasn't uh, solved that many problems, or math and science hasn't solved that many problems, it's also the case that the ones that were solved, it's not uh, trivial to do. It's not like you can just use any mathematical equation and, you know, you be able to understand something. I mean, basically... Our entire field is based on finding the right math that will explain something. Yeah, no, I was thinking about this as well. I mean, it, it struck me that, you know, kind of, he takes it for granted that there exists math that can conveniently and, and beautifully uh, and effectively describe, you know, whatever concepts you're interested in. But to me, like, that developed very slowly over history. Whenever you look at a new object, like a small set of numbers or triangles or you know, things like this, whole fields have spent long periods of time developing the mathematical formalism that allows them to accurately describe uh, the, the, the concepts that they're interested in and, you know, sort of derive or prove all of the properties of those systems. And kind of even still, you know, like contemporary math, they're interested in things like knots, you know, which are relatively simple things in nature. But it's complicated in, in terms of the things that mathematicians have, have yet to deal with. And we don't have, uh, you know, for, for, for more complicated things like, you know, social things in social sciences or... Or just cells. Individual yeah, individual cells. cells. Or we have simple models that describe parts simple, of yeah, you know, cells. But, and we don't have things for, you know, kind of the, like how, how the brain works. It's an active field figuring out what kinds of concepts we can describe formally what kinds of concepts are relevant to describe, and then what kinds of properties those concepts have. I think there's, you know, when you find the right equation or when it's handed to you by, you know, generations before, there's a sense in which it is very powerful. And if it is a somewhat simple equation to look at, you might think that this is crazy. Like, 
how do we have something so powerful? But I think that's forgetting, you know, all of the strife that went into finding that very powerful thing. It's like going through labor and then, like, you know, being so in love with the kid that you forgot that labor was incredibly painful. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So beautiful. So I think there's a sense in which you think, like, oh, well, this is just magical. We're just, like, we can just write this thing down and then we can... Uh, predict a system but really it took a lot of study of the system and a lot of trial and error to get to the point where you could do that i also i think what you said at the beginning is all about what is the alternative like when you say mathematics is like unreasonably effective it sort of implies some sense of what's what a reasonable level of effectiveness is for any particular mode of describing things yeah. what is the other mode in which we would describe Quantities. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Quantities. There is precise no, objects. There is no the other... Only, like, you could have a conceptual model of something where you just yeah. generally say, I think this, you know, A influences B positively. I mean, that's just a very bad mathematical model. Yeah, that is math. So, yeah. But you just haven't made it very clear. Yeah, so, I, I mean, there was another thing that I, that I was thinking about as I was doing this. I mean, I, this is kind of a, like a petty thing. I don't like the really idea of kind of reifying math as a thing and then saying it's unreasonably effective. To me, this is just people being effective in communicating about specific types of objects. Mm -hmm. it, it, math isn't like a like a thing in its own right. But I think just people can communicate formally sometimes. That's at the heart of this, though. Yeah, it is. I yeah. Agree. Yeah. Is this if you if you do think that math is just a whole separate thing? And you think, oh, people are just studying math, and then all of a sudden that math can be applied to things in the real world, then you might say, well, that's crazy. Why would that work? But if you think of math as being, you know, an ongoing process that interacts with the world that it's trying to, to model, then it's a little more reasonable. Um, but there is, so one of the things that Bigner brings up is the fact that, you know, since his view of math is that your the math mathematicians are creating concepts and that sort of thing, and they're doing it somewhat haphazardly, then it's very surprising that in the end you can get these things to fit back together um, in ways that you weren't really aiming for them to do so. But even that, I think, well, it goes back to one, uh, are, you, are people really being so haphazard with this? I mean, they're still following the rules of math in some way. They're not making up, you know, mathematical concepts that completely fly in the face of what has been done before. And also, again, if the world does have some underlying structure to it, then if you, you know, shine a flashlight on one area and understand something and shine a flashlight on another one, you shouldn't be surprised that if you shine a big light on it, that they're connected in some way. If it's there and math is just helping you talk about it, then it shouldn't be surprising that, that it works out in the end. Yeah, some, somehow that those philosophical ideas aren't the most mysterious, mysterious thing, right? Like that there is consistency, that like when you shine a flashlight in one place, understand something, shine it somewhere else, understand something, that there even is a sort of coherent in-between that can then all be, you know, looked at. Like, this is all just philosophy, though. I don't see so much why that's about yeah. mathematics. And even that, to say, oh, it's so shocking that there's consistency. Should I be shocked by that? This is the only world that I've experienced. I don't know if most worlds are completely inconsistent and unpredictable or uncontrollable or something. So, so if I might summarize what, what kind of our feeling is at this point, maybe not that we necessarily all have exactly the same feeling, but uh, kind of the, the, the key thing we're kind of not sure about is his claim is that this is something about math in applying it to science. But it seems to us that there's structure in the world and math is to some extent a description of uh, certain abstract properties of things in the world. So when you see structure in math, it's just kind of a reflection or, or some sort of abstraction of the structure and the thing that the math is trying to describe. Maybe? Is that... Yeah. Now, you know, I think it's also clear that, like, the math isn't exactly what's going on in the world. And this is something that maybe has sort of a tenuous philosophical link. And it's, I would say, probably a difficult problem, right? It's, it's, not, it's not the case that the math is exactly what's going on. There's something going on in the world, and we use math to describe it. So, so this is kind of, I don't know, philosophically hairy, because it's slightly unclear how to proceed there. If, you know, the math isn't exactly what we're dealing with. We're dealing with something. It's, we're trying to describe it. So, but, so what's the relationship of math to, to, the real world? to the real world? I mean, it's a model of it. It's a model the same way that you can make a model of a molecule to understand how the molecule functions. It's not the same thing. 
you know, you can make like a physical large model that you can look at and play with to understand something like protein folding or anything like that. Now, now just as a nuanced point, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I, I accept that math is kind of a model of the real world. I, I would say maybe math is the language, kind of the closest way I could say it. Math is the language in which we formulate models of things in the real world. You can get kind of arbitrarily philosophical about it. I mean, if you think about like the process, it's kind of a social process, right? Understanding. So you could somehow, if you kind of, you have to kind of grant the existence of like people and grant that we have some kinds of ways that we can interact with the world. And then you can kind of view the whole process as there are many people who go around. You could, let's just assume we think there is something called the world and we can, we kind of consider that as maybe some type of hidden system. We have like apparatus for probing, observing, observing so, it, yeah. and interacting. Well, we can also probe. Right? Sure, yeah, yeah. So we can observe it possibly somehow. We can also like put inputs into it. And that kind of ends up being like the essence of science in a way. Yeah, but we, we put can, inputs in and then we start to observe them. Yeah, we put inputs in and then we like we can view it as a black box and then we view the outputs and sure. And then the, the mathematics is kind of a way of somehow like the what is what is the understanding? It's somehow like everyone coming to a set of agreed upon concepts that kind of work in certain ways. And we use mathematics to sort of keep it, like, to kind of communicate it. Even if it's to yourself, like, you, if you write it down in mathematics and it exists into the future and stuff, so, I, I kind of view it in that kind of, because a like, communication type thing. But so, Which I think emphasizes why it, viewing it as a language is kind of yeah. reasonable, maybe. Yeah. And I would say, kind of naively, there's a sense of, well, if you can predict something, then you must understand the system in some way. But related to Hamming's objection that um, that we kind of we pick the math and the idea that you know we're we're looking for the mathematical solutions and that sort of thing, I think people only actually consider it kind of understanding when the mathematical equation is relatively simple and yeah, elegant simple. by the in the eyes of mathematicians and that sort of thing. And so again, this goes back to. Like, you know, if someone shows you E equals MC squared, something like that, and you think, wow, that's so, like, simple and beautiful, and it explains so much, this must be magical. Well, there's a lot of other equations that explain a lot of things, but they're just big and unwieldy, and, you know, you don't feel like you got something by looking at it because it's too many moving parts for the human brain to understand, but those equations can still predict things and can still, in some way, model and explain how the world is working, but we just don't consider those, you know, like the success stories. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Hamming talks about elegance or aesthetics yeah. as part of, sort of the historical development of math. And I think that that's incredibly strange when you think about it. Yeah, but it's clearly key. I mean, you had a whole bunch of, you know, kind of white European, mostly British men yeah. who, who, you know, had kind of certain aesthetic and cultural attitudes and I think they, they liked the idea of things being both like foundationally well-grounded and also simple and kind of eternal. Yeah. Um, and, and those kind of things, I think, are, are really baked into the way that people still think about math. They're kind of eternal truths that, that exist permanently. They're, they're foundational and elegant or, or pleasing. But so I think Hamming says that, oh, there's something interesting in the fact that this focus on aesthetics and elegance has helped the field and has like helped us be able to make math that explain the world. But I don't know that that's true. We don't have a control condition where nobody cared about the elegance of an equation. Yeah. Um, I mean, in some sense, because I think part of what, you know, the criteria for elegance is in this, uh, this world of mathematics is simplicity and the ability to kind of grasp what the equation is saying by looking at it. Uh, the fact that we try to make everyone put things in elegant terms has probably made people better able to understand the systems that they're trying to model. And so perhaps it's moved things forward that way, but not because the right answers are necessarily the most elegant, just because if it's humans doing it, they need it in a digestible form. Yeah, and then, you know, going along with that, there's this kind of, we were talking earlier about simple scientific problems are the ones that are most amenable to, like, beautiful, elegant mathematical descriptions, which to me seems very... You know, straightforward because it's just yeah. that's totally in line with the idea that mathematics kind of is limited, can only describe certain things and so on. And you see that today, like as we were talking again about people coming into biology, physicists coming into biology, wanting to simplify, wanting to be you know concise, wanting to be mathematical. And I think in neuroscience is a good example, right? Nowadays, people are coming up with like much more computational approaches, and you hear people kind of 
these computational approaches are kind of successful by certain measures, but those measures are kind of other than elegance. Maybe we can talk a bit about what those are. Sure. And then you hear, and I think there's a bit of a feeling from like the more physics-y side of computational neuroscience that this is a bit out of our grasp. Really. Yeah, it's like if, if I can, if I look, if you show me an equation that perhaps predicts or describes something well, but I, I can't kind of look at it and appreciate it in, in, a, in an understandable, digestible way or, or know how to work with it, yeah. you know, like kind of, I think... If the, you have to put it into a computer. If you yeah, have to put it in a computer, then it's like, yeah. I, I don't know if this is a good explanation. Yeah. But, but, but that said, that's kind of, maybe there is, that bias might be good in a certain sense, which yeah. is that you're looking at it and thinking, I'm not sure how I would do further analysis that builds on this. Yeah, exactly. And that, it has that's, to be... Yeah. The simple elegant solution for humans to be able to work with it. Yeah, yeah. So, but like, if you have something that works in a computer, yeah. but y- when you look at it, you think, "I don't know how to build off of this." Yeah. Then it's not clear what future progress could be built off of that. You're just going to be kind of like randomly tweaking things in that equation or that that kind of complicated model that we can't deal with analytically. Mm-hmm. You're just kind of tweaking it in the computer and seeing what happens, and it becomes kind of kind of fumbling rather than doing kind of principled work. Well, we've spelled out what um, sure, kind of thing we're talking about. So I guess what I was thinking of is, um, so there's a whole field of neural networks, which is which are basically simple kind of computer models that are supposed to be analogous to the to parts of the brain or to the brain, and that can be used for performing tasks, which in the end basically means implementing functions or algorithms effectively. Um, and so there, that's very different to simple physical theories in a way, because a, a physical theory might be you want to have one simple equation that describes a set of phenomena that you can kind of understand in some ways. Something like, statistically speaking, all of the neurons in this brain region are, you know, attached to all of the neurons in this other brain region with a certain distribution of weights, and then we can do analysis based on that. Yeah, and that's going to describe, that's going to kind of give us understanding of how the brain is working. But then recently you can, what you can do is you can take a big neural network, network which consists of all these units that are like neurons, and then the connections between them will have a weight, which is so, you know, which kind of describes how much one neuron influences the other. That's the weight between the two neurons. And if you want the neural network to do a certain type of thing, you can just using some computational techniques, you can train the neural network to do that. So you can up, you can change all of the weights in using an algorithm that will hopefully make a neural network do a certain thing that you want it to do. And recently, people have had a lot of success in getting neural networks to do things like object recognition, which is considered a very hard problem to train an artificial system to do, like a machine. So you give an a image as the input, and then there will be a label of what's in that image as the output. Which, yeah. Or uh, even, you know, more recently, like captions of what, yeah. what the image are. Now, I, I, you know, to me, I'm a little, I find this a little less objectionable, and I think a lot of people uh, with a scientific disposition do, because to me, there's still some simplicity in the way that the networks are trained. So the networks may be somewhat arbitrary, but the way you train the network is kind of a simple rule. Yeah. So the rule is simple, but then the actual equations you have to use to implement it can get quite big. It can get complicated, but yeah. they, they, they kind of stem from a simple principle, yeah, yeah. which is no different than you would really expect in physics, where if you have the you know the dynamics of one particle, you know, to have an interacting system where you have like 10 particles, to compute that explicitly could well, still be complicated. Well, in physics, the goal would be to have one equation that explains, you know, the mass of particles. Well, no, so there's, there's yeah, there's different yeah. approaches. In statistical physics, you'd want uh, one equation that describes kind of the ensemble properties yeah. of the particles. And, but, but I think that is what some people want in neuroscience. They want, okay, sure, you know, primary visual cortex, this is the equation of it. And, you know, some other area has some other equation, and then you can put them together or... Something yeah, but like I mean, kind of looking at it in the sort of micro view, if you have in physics individual particles and you want to calculate, you know, and you can think about this like the solar system is a set of planets and it's hard to compute the dynamics of all of the planets in the solar system beyond some amount of time into the future because small perturbations in, you know, the locations of the planets will, you know, give very different predictions far out in, in time. Yeah. Um, but so the... The point of the neural network example is just kind of that it's not elegant, but it does do what we would want an elegant theory to be able to do. And so... Which is to predict things nicely. Yeah. yeah. And so or in or some people's minds... At least some simple phenomena. Yeah. yeah. 
And so in some people's minds, you know, the job is not done because it's such a hairy solution. Whereas for other people, you know, maybe they're okay with the answer just being complicated. Uh, as we were saying, you know, physics, you know, it has been historically the things that were modelable simply. And so now if you're trying to move on to what appear to be more complex systems, you might, you know, you might be wrong to expect the answers of the same scale and elegance that you had in physics. Because they were simple systems. Yeah. yeah. No, so Wigner also points out, uh, you know, uh, an example that, he, that is about free electron theory, which kind of, it's something which describes semiconductors and, and some, some other electrical systems he talks about. Um, and, and basically the point is you can predict kind of resistances versus insulator types of capacities of materials based on models of the physics of those systems which are not accurate, but which are kind of crude approximations of the physics. And, uh, I mean, this kind of gets, gets at this point, which is, you know, if, if you have, a, um, you know, some idea, a model of, of some system, that model could be wrong. Um, but still right in certain ways. It could be an approximation, it could be a low-resolution version of an accurate model, or it could be kind of totally wrong in, in so many deep ways, but somehow like produces equivalent predictions to uh, a true or, or right model. So somehow pr predictive power isn't necessarily the only... I mean, it's, it's clearly not the measure of truth, something you could you know predict something without having the right model, but like... In general, there's not much that a scientist can do uh, to distinguish between two models that are able to, on similar sets of observations, predict equally well. The, the, the best you can hope for is that at some subsequent time, there will be something that discriminates between those two models. But if everything you care about is sufficiently coarse in terms of resolution, it's not clear that you could. So like in terms of the brain, trying to bring it back to that example, you know, if, if you have some you know, may, maybe some neural network model of the brain is able to do as well as we can expect something to do right now, but won't at some future time, uh, because, you know, kind of the complexity of the data we're looking at so far, the complexity of the observations we're looking at so far is, is limited. Yeah. And it'll take a, a more principled approach, or perhaps, you know, a better neural network model. So I think to truly I, the thing we were talking about earlier, um, about understanding and about simplicity and elegance, right? So one way of saying, why is elegance a good thing to use as a criterion in assessing scientific models? And, math and in particular, it kind of points you, if you have it as a criterion, it points you to the use of mathematics. It's because it makes it, it makes it such that you not only select the theory that is good at predicting currently, but is also most um, useful or easiest to build on in future. Yeah. Right? So part of the selection criterion for a theory is how likely is it that we will be able to build on this theory in the future when we want to explain more things? And I kind of think, a thing that occurs to me when we talk about neural networks and computation, because, you know, we are in the era where computers are becoming faster and faster, and that's like a relatively young period in terms of the history of science, right? The history of the period in which we have had computers is young, and we're still at the beginning of it in some ways. Um, and it might be that that criterion will become less and less important. The criterion that a theory should be something we can build upon as we create better and better computers and in particular the computers should build upon it if yeah. we create artificial intelligence right then we might have things that don't need well the the ai would determine what's elegant by yes, their standards for example and by their standards then that might be something very different right oh, because yeah. they would have computational resources that are very different to ours we have computational resources in terms of what our brains can do certain kinds of um, linguistic symbolic kind of manipulation yeah, yeah. We can and they're limited them. to a certain domain right yeah. and we you could you, you know a different type of intelligence, which I guess you alluded to at the beginning, it could be an alien, right, or something, a different species. We don't know what they could do. And yeah, it could be that we would create computers, which in some clear way, computers are, I mean, very fast computers now are kind of better than us by many measures. For certain things. For, for counting. Things. Executing you know, yeah. mathematical yeah. equations. Yeah, and like terrible compared to us for other things, like understanding language, various kind of generalizations of various kinds and so on. But yeah, that could change that. Criterion of elegance. Yeah, so I, I was I was thinking there's also something that comes up called representation learning, um, which is you know also comes up in the context of, of neural network literature. But but the idea is simply that so so right now most ways that systems are described for the purposes of engineering and science we have to specify what's interesting 
And then we come up with the math, which describes how those interesting variables change. Or, which is uh, a benefit of forcing elegance. It means that you only get to have the parameters in there that actually matter. Sure. Yeah. We only want a very limited number of parameters if we're going to call something elegant. But it, it takes it, you know, historically for for simple things, it, it, it even you know it took a very long time to figure out what was relevant. Is it the case, you know, when when the, 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 the example that keeps coming up in these is, is something related to Kepler? You know, when Kepler looked at planets, which which variables did he think were interesting? I mean, he had to pick. He had to look at and you know between Newton and Kepler, they had to figure out you know separately. They had to figure out which variables. Were, were interesting and how to describe how those variables changed over time. What if you could give an algorithm, a machine, something like this, just all of the raw data and it told you which variables were interesting effectively. Mm-hmm. It, it learned what variables were worth representing and represented those. I mean, that's, that's kind of the dream and that would clearly accelerate science because, you know, even today, a big part of what you have to figure out is, you know, what are the interesting variables? I've got some observations. I want a model that explains it, but I have no idea what what you know variables to deal with. What variables will yield simple models, simple equations uh, on those variables? Yeah, the representation learning I think kind of maybe changes that a bit because it places less emphasis on the human engineering mm-hmm. or, or just like playing around with what to model and just tells you you know in in an ideal version would tell you. What's worth representing? I mean, it's interesting thing to go back to the sense of are we should we be surprised about what our math can do? You know, if you gave the raw data of the universe to AI, you know, would it come out modeling it in some form of mathematics or something? Like, what would be the language that an AI would use to represent the universe, and would it line up with our mathematics in some way? Or you know, if we only gave in AI, the tools of mathematics that we've developed so far, how much could it get done? Something like that. Just as an aside, I think it's funny we're using AI in kind of like an oracle-like sense. <laughs> well, which is, yeah, it's like the, the AI that people are, are are kind of optimistic for would just be beyond us in such a way that, I mean, kind of in, in, in you know, math, computer science language, when they want like a baseline that like, you know, yeah. are we doing something reasonable? They compare it to an oracle. Yeah. which is, like, the right thing to do. It's often hard to figure out what the well, right thing to do is. Well, at least would be a, a different thing that was done. Like, you know, some sure, other, yeah. if we could have some other human-like species tackling this problem and, like, they didn't get to talk to each other. Like, Russia and the U.S. and the Cold War. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. what happened? That actually gave some good control, right? Because yeah. Russia and And they and discovered a lot of the same yeah. things. Discovered so a lot of the same, yeah. That's, yeah. you know, that suggests something. They're both humans, though, yeah? Yeah, they're both humans. So, okay, that, that example is control. Right, Russia versus America during the Cold War, they discover the same thing. So one, some of the same things. Some of the same. Let's just say, let's just say they discover the same things. Well, both both of them found certain types of math, certain types of math applicable to engineering, especially for military applications, useful. So that. So Hamming's objections, like one, we see what we look for. Could still apply because I guess the Russians and Americans were kind of looking for the same thing. And they had the same like basis in the same math. They they weren't divergent from the very beginning. I mean, this is not going to be a super strong thing. That's (laughs) interesting. Uh, We select the kind of mathematics to use. That's to apply to a specific problem, right? So yeah, because he was he gave some example of he wrote a paper where he was using one plus one equals zero, and that helped him in his math. So there's some sense in which oh maybe not. You know, we can't create a universal mathematical system that's entirely consistent and will explain everything. But did Maybe. they use math that was in some sense different to come to the same? Same, like, same, like whether the same, same... When they figured out the same engineering problems, did yeah, they use did they the use same, same math same to get math? there? I think... I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think yeah. any of us know when about historians this. historians yeah. of math. Hmm. That's, that's, interesting that's an interesting question. question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think some of it was quite... Some of the control, uh, control engineering... Yeah, right. it was well, based it was on the same math, like Fourier analysis and things like, like this. No, but there were also very different approaches, right? Like Bellman. Yeah. Had, there's, there was yeah. this Bellman's equation approach to optimal control, and then there's this maximum principle then. Yeah. Pontryagin yeah. or whatever. Yes, yeah. Who was a Russian guy. Those are like somewhat different. I mean, they're also similar. But yeah, 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 there's, yeah, you're right. there's no. a lot of Wikipedia pages where it's like, this is this theorem or this Russian person's name's theorem. That's so true. that would suggest that... Yeah, and there's tons of examples of, of those things, like theorems that were effectively discovered by both Americans and Russians. And then people didn't in America didn't know the Russian stuff and then it was dug out like, at some yeah. point in the future. But, but you are right that for certain problems, there were definitely distinct algorithms that were used. Yeah. Does that mean that the math is totally different? I mean, you know, different algorithms can often be different perspectives on the same problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard to... Um, but so this idea of evolution yeah. that uh, Hamming gives, I didn't. Know, I don't know if I fully understood what he was saying. Yeah, what's the point? Something about... He, he was talking about, you know, we evolved to be able to model the world and control it because that will obviously give you a good chance of survival, and, you know, that's fine. Um, but he says, ultimately, that he doesn't think evolution can explain more than a small part of the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. But I don't know how it was supposed to. I mean, it can explain why we have the mental machinery to do something like mathematics at all. Um, but I don't know how it was supposed to explain the effectiveness of mathematics. Yeah, so maybe it's just that, you know, when we judge models, yeah. we judge them on criteria that pertain to what we've evolved to think of as relevant. So, like, if, if a certain scientific model helps me farm better or, you know, do, do any of the kinds of things that I care about better. We're, we're judging our models based on, again, you know, simplicity in, insofar as they're tractable for our brains yeah. and, like, a small set of objectives. In a certain sense, our models don't have to be true because we're not really evolved to care whether they're true or we're evolved to kind of, you know, only care about the extent to which they are useful for us given our, like, small range of sensory abilities. Mm-hmm. And I guess... Yeah, so some of the idea is that it's not surprising that it's effective because it's something that has evolved in order to be effective for certain purposes. That yeah. Okay. Well, so, but the, the but part of the claim, right? Just to be clear, for there, there's no claim that well, there there is. There, there's mixed claims as to whether humans evolved for mathematics. It, it doesn't seem to be the case that humans like evolved for the kind of math that we do, but like you know, Hamming's claim does pertain to like he claims like we've evolved to like follow chains of, of reasoning. But to ask like you this. know, did we evolve for mathematics is again putting mathematics in this like mm-hmm. special position, amazing yeah. category. I mean, we evolved to be able to understand relationships between things and also to be able to describe things. Yeah, yeah. And I think to kind of those capacities yeah. and explain relationships, and that's what math is. So in some sense, yes, of course, we've evolved. To, to I think do we, the things that we kind of already know to a very limited extent from basic AI research that, like, you know, it seems very likely to me that there's going to be other ways of very effectively solving similar problems that won't look like what we would call simple mathematics. Mm-hmm. So, kind of computational approaches, like, those are going to work for a lot of things, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, we didn't talk about reading this one as a group, but this, this one that it's by. Uh, Halavi, Norvig, and Pereira, who are Google researchers, and it's called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Data. This one was written in like 2006, 2009, sorry. And, you know, they kind of go in a slightly different direction, which is closer to the direction we're going in, which is like, don't worry about your models being simple or even interpretable. If you have web scale data, is kind of like the, the way they look at it, mm-hmm. you can just build huge models that do a great job. Often they're simpler models than you might have otherwise needed to explain data reliably. But they're simple models that are kind of, you know, have lots of, 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 of data and it models kind of higher order correlations between these data. And as a consequence, you can, uh, you can, you can do reasonably well with those. So that, that is kind of, I mean, there so, are certainly people who speak to that direction. I mean, I feel like if that was the way that, you know, understanding the world started with somehow, like the approach was always like, just get a bunch of data and just you know, sort through it automatically and get some sort of complicated input-output function, you know, no one would have written this, these kinds of articles that are in awe of it. I think it really is the fact that there are simple equations that feel understandable to us that can then explain the world that really makes people think that there has to be something magical to it. You know, you know that the world is complicated, so if there's some big complicated thing that you don't understand that predicts the other big complicated thing yeah. you don't understand... I imagine there wouldn't be a sense of, like, ah, how could that work? No, and that gets to the thing of complex... Yeah, no, it's about simple phenomena. I think we're coming at this from a very different time than either of these writers. One was 1960, one was 1980. To us, the interesting things in contemporary academia and intellectual life are are complex systems, or, or, or certainly systems which are unambiguously complex relative to the kinds of things that people by 1960... Not a helium atom. Yeah, exactly, not a helium atom. And more like an animal. Yeah. yeah, like a whole animal, mm-hmm. or like, yeah, the, the, the way you could build a robot, or, you know, the way the brain works, or, you know, uh, you know, maybe some physical system that's like a concrete physics problem, but like one that's got many, many moving parts. Heterogeneous parts that you all have, yeah, you have to care about a lot of the different parts. Yeah, and so we're not kind of, 
our intellectual attitude or predisposition is not one of expecting uh, simple solutions that we can look at. We kind of expect, yeah, I'll, I'll be able to understand all the constituent parts, and maybe I'll be able to understand like some high-level schema for how well, they when relate. When I try to really understand the whole thing, I'm going to have to put it in a computer. Yeah, yeah I'm going to have to. Well, put not it in the even computer. that so much, but also just you know, we are now trained. You know, you take calculus in high school, and you can just get more complicated from there on in college. So what we consider simple now is not really simple. If you're looking at like the principal components of something, like if you really think about that, you know, that's a pretty abstracted thing that you're applying to already abstracted data, probably. And so uh, just what we think of as simple is different. And so... But some computer visualization has in part enabled that expansion of our capabilities, right? You don't have to be that brilliant to, you know, open up some existing software package like MATLAB and run, like, some function in MATLAB that shows you, like, really abstract structure, like principal component analysis, of you know, some complicated data set. So when you look at the PCs of something, the principal components, I think there's a, still a sense in which as a human you feel like, okay, I'm understanding this. This is what, you know, the main trends in this data are, which is qualitatively different from like, well, I can put it into a computer and it'll give me an output, you know. I, there's something about the personal experience of believing that you understand a system that is really important when you're going to talk about, oh, it like has someone discovered math that explains something maybe that gets at our yeah kind of the evolution thing what are their what are our, our, our personal goals like somehow you could say that the drive for understanding is some rather global pressure but maybe part of how that manifests in people and what people are like is that you have this personal goal it's kind of desirable for you to feel in control of your environment and when you're doing something kind of kind of abstract like exercise the exercise of scientific investigation you actually want to feel in control in some way maybe in the future it might be that like if you really had a computer that was and i think this is true already right that was incredibly reliable you wouldn't actually feel as uneasy just you know i feel like that's true already in you know if you just think about like what functions we allow a computer to do and trust so like accounting and like planning airline schedules. But we're not ready like to this. let them diagnose all of our illness without. Well, we don't any blink oversight. about some of these. We things. barely let them. You know, we're kind of reluctant to let them drive cars at least right now. Yeah, or so at some point, what would we probably will let them had? at some point. Yeah. I'm just. I don't know. I guess I'm wondering if maybe this um, urge to kind of uh, have simple personal understandings, like yeah. what, the focus of that, basically changes the mm-hmm. more that you trust to black box kind of things, and you kind of forget that. You ever, you ever even cared yeah. about being able to understand Maybe. that thing? It's a question of human nature, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, so I think the historical context of the 1960 paper, certainly, right, and then also the 1980 paper was kind of people thought, hey, I'm going to, you know, look at some system and attempt to understand it. And, you know, they use an example of, like, in gravity, the inverse square law, you know, the, the notion that the distance between objects is important and, and related to the, the gravitational force between them, you know, but so is, is it, you know, how, how surprising, so th- what, what was it that they were in awe of? They're in awe that a simple relationship uh, or a simple mathematical expression governs the amount of force, you know, between something. So, you know, I don't know if, if we sit back and, you know, and, and think about that for a moment, is it surprising to us or, or you know, miraculous to use their kind of language that, you know, the gravitational force between two particles can be accurately described by an inverse square law. It's not so clear to me that, like, it's interesting. It's also one force between two idealized particles. It is, again, a simple phenomena. It's not surprising to me that some simple, relatively simple... We should be allowed some simplicity in the world. (laughs) We should be allowed. Yeah. God should give us some simplicity. (laughs) But that's kind of the point. I mean, you know, is it, you know, should we have expected that it would be like a mathematical relationship with like, you know, 10 terms or, or perhaps infinitely many terms? I mean, if you're only required two to particles and their distance, you know, in this idealized form. But yeah. So in some sense, that's all the relevant variables. And as soon as you figure out what's relevant, yeah. maybe it's not surprising that it's simple. But again, it's, it's not, somehow it's still not obvious to me that it's, it's, obvious that it's simple even in the simplified setting so that, that like that's i think the thing that they got kind of caught up with 
and thought was fantastic. That is they're... that in a two-particle system with one force, which is already quite simple, mm-hmm. that it turned out to be, you know, a one-term expression mm-hmm. that related them. And it wasn't somehow more complicated than that. It isn't obvious that it should be, but, like, they really liked that it was that simple. That's the kind of simplicity that they were excited by. Yeah. Which, I don't know, somehow it's not so interesting because, you know, to us at this point, because we're interested in, as we said, more complicated systems. We recognize that everything that they studied was more complicated. You know, you can yeah. approximate it with that simple thing, but since there are yeah. other yeah. forces always at play that you're just ignoring. Yeah. So it's, it's the, so in our, yeah, but yeah, to, to, to sort of hone in on that, right, that law, as they call it, that law does hold, you know, really reliably, you know, you have to, it holds to many, many decimal places and, you know, kind of only recently have they done experiments which are discrepant on that simple relationship. But I guess, yeah, the, the, the thing about it that doesn't really hold is that the setting is usually not that simple, right? Even in the planets, it's not really an inverse square law because the planets aren't perfect circles, they're not points, right? And, you know, there's other planets involved. There's messiness that, that makes it so that that's only an abstraction. And so I guess to us, you know, kind of, we're, we're balancing the surprisingness of that extremely simple relationship with the kind of recognition that, eh, it's not really true. So it's, yeah. it's kind of... So their surprise kind of came from two sources. The fact that you could use math to represent the world and the fact that the findings that they had in the math were so simple. And, you know, if the world is structured, then maybe you shouldn't be surprised that another, you know, structured language can represent it. And also those simple relationships, you know, aren't even the whole story. So it's yeah. kind of the, the origins for the surprise and unreasonableness are... Different now. But it's again, it's, it's not totally clear to me that it isn't still slightly surprising, or perhaps extremely surprising, that a simple relationship describes the simple setting. Like, you could imagine... Like, you know, this people talk about this in, in various settings. Like, well, maybe, you know, there's another universe where it's not so simple. And I don't know. I, you know, there, there's a whole set of philosophy around that. But yeah, but I, I, I don't really think that pertains here, right? It, because it isn't about whether the alternative rules would be, uh, would be stable, which is what the anthropic principle ends up talking about, right? The anthropic principle is concerned with whether alternative universes with different constants, for example, are stable. So it's not like the constants are the way they are because they have to be for the universe to be stable and for us to even be here. Oh, but but that's a, that's something different, right? In our case, the the relationships are actually simple, and they could be you know why couldn't they be complex and still stable, right? You know the fact that they are the way they are doesn't really pertain to their simplicity or their complexity. Yeah. So but I don't I mean, know. For me, that's not about mathematics, though. It's no, just, I agree. It's yeah. like why is the world simple? I mean, maybe it is about mathematics, I'm not sure. But anyway, what we were just talking about is Hamming's point three, right? Effectively. Science, in fact, answers comparative abuse problems. That's yeah. pretty much that, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. We can describe accurately super idealist situations, and then at the end... And, like, you know, like, things like the LHC, this big particle accelerator in Switzerland, you can kind of think of that as, like, kind of, like, the furthest limits of human beings' attempts to create really simple situations. <laughs> yeah. um, that we can... And it's like, oh, wow, it's so impressive, you know... Because it predicts whatever, like it predicts basically a, you know, a bunch of outcomes of some insanely, in some way, simple situation that you set up by having to do these ridiculous manipulations with these massive amounts of energy to get it to be relatively few particles. We kind of know what their distribution is, and then bang them into each other. Like basically, you're banging stuff together, right? And you're and you're going to these insane lengths to make it so that you kind of know approximately what you're banging together. And you can kind of measure some of the properties of what happens when you bind together. Um, and then your theory works really well. But like, if you want to explain King Cat <laughs> from like quantum mechanics, like, that's obviously... Yeah. And people say, like, oh, but, you know, the Higgs boson was predicted and, you know, the location of planets that weren't known was predicted from the math. But I'm sure there's plenty of times where someone made a prediction based on their math and it was never justified. And mm-hmm. so the sense that, oh, math is just, you know, so great at understanding and predicting things. It's mm-hmm. probably uh, influenced by the, the bias towards only publishing positive results. Yeah. 
So why I, does why does Hamming conclude that mathematics is unreasonably effective? I don't yeah, get that. Yeah, he gave this whole list. These of... four like great reasons why it's not. Yeah, well, well, I, I thought his conclusion was was anticlimactic. Yeah, it was like, like it was he's just like, one sentence he's like, negated. I'm gonna I'm gonna just I I've made a lot of good points, but I'm just gonna <laughs> defer. Math is unreasonably effective. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't argue for that. Yeah, as far I, as I can tell, he basically I mean his points aren't really arguments either, but yeah, they're no, much no. more arguments than okay. He presents these points, and I think three of the first three, at least to me, are kind of arguments. Three kind of different arguments for why we shouldn't consider mathematics unreasonably effective. And then his conclusion is like a few sentences, and it's just like from all of this, I am forced to conclude both that mathematics is unreasonably effective, and that all of the explanations I have given, when added together, simply are not enough to explain what I set out to account for. I mean, yeah, I, why? I, yeah, why is that your conclusion? I don't understand. <laughs> like, People are just overwhelmed by the awe that they experience. You know? I'd be really interested to meet now Hamming and Wigner and like talk to them about. I wonder what they would say to what we've said. Like, I feel like a glib young person dismissing me because <laughs> like Wigner and Hamming were both like seriously serious dudes, and they were like important, and they came up with like loads. They each came up with loads of like cool and complicated stuff. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like when I'm saying, "Oh yeah," like. Of course, mathematics is effective. I feel like, you know, like some of Wigner's stuff that's like tricky to understand. And some of his mathematics that's like, I couldn't do that mathematics. And yet I feel like I'm kind of saying, oh yeah, but I don't find your arguments that it should be, that mathematics is surprising. I don't find it convincing. I'd, I'd really love to know what he would say. Like, are we just so generationally different? Well, also, I mean, someone who's good at the actual work of mathematics might still, you know, have different opinions on the philosophy yeah. level of it. So, I mean, you can't just, it's not that, it's not the case that everyone who's really good at actually doing mathematics, you know, has a really firm grasp or has even necessarily thought about it on a more philosophical level. Yeah, I mean, I think it's common in mid and early 20th century for well-known, brilliant thinkers on various hard topics like Einstein or, or various mathematicians to, you know, just kind of kind of talk, address the public in the way that now New York Times bestseller books are written to do about what they've done and to kind of revel in it a bit. Yeah. I mean, and I just, I mean, dispositionally, I want to clarify that, that you know, at the end of the day... It sounds as though we're coming down very harshly on science and mathematics. Like, clearly, uh, although, uh, you know, we're all, we all like using math, right? I mean, we use math because it's an effective language to describe scientific phenomena. And I think all of us are interested in understanding various scientific phenomena and think math is the appropriate way of going about that. So in that, in that sense, it's reasonably effective, like, we all kind of think that math is very reasonably effective. Yeah. It's the right tool for the job yeah. of understanding relatively simple and maybe complex phenomena. And, you know, I think kind of, uh, you know, I like having learned you know, over, over some of my education about simple phenomena. But, you know, I think kind of the, the forefront of science is moving towards complex phenomena, kind of more yeah. more complex phenomena. And maybe that's the, the direction that it seems like. We need to figure out ways of extending our tools to, to reach. Yeah. But maybe, I mean, so his last sentence, and again, it's, he says, the logical side of the nature of the universe requires further exploration. And that kind of gets at this thing like you were saying. Maybe it is actually kind of surprising that even in a very simplified case, we have two particles and the distance between them and the force, that there's a simple relationship between the force and the distance. Um, but to me, that's just, that's a philosophy question. I kind of think it's interesting. Like it's not, it is in some sense, doesn't have to, I mean, what does it even mean to say it doesn't have to be? But, you know, I find that not like completely obvious. Um, but I don't think it's really about mathematics. And I still have this feeling at the beginning. It's like when you say something is unreasonable, you have to have some kind of notion of what it means to be reasonable. Yeah. What is the bench line level? I just, that there's no, so it's obviously a kind of joke, obviously, to say it's unreasonably <laughs> effective. Like they basically have a sense that it's somehow very effective. I don't know. In the end, it kind of feels like the, no, but the, the overall theme is like, oh, amazing that the world is describable at all, and kind of amazing that we can describe it. But to me, it's just like, yeah, that's kind of amazing. The fact that it was mathematics, that's the only possible way we could have explained it. I mean, it's just us trying as hard as we can to be clear. Like, what what, what, what do you think we do, right? Sure, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that that's yeah, a good summary. Um, 
So it seems like we've kind of settled on the idea that, uh, well, one, it's not really clear how to claim something is unreasonably effective when you have no benchmark or no other world to compare it to. And um, also that it shouldn't be terribly surprising that uh, a system that represents relationships can, you know, predict and explain the world if the world itself uh, follows some rules of relationships. Um, but you could perhaps be surprised that the world is as consistent and rule-based as it seems to be based on what we've discovered through mathematics and science. Thanks for listening to Unsupervised Thinking. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.